The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Sportbox. Let's kick off your week with the headlines. A ransomware attack shuts down a major U.S. fuel pipeline as NBC News learns a Russian criminal group may be behind the attack. Oil prices rise while the U.S. government declares a state of emergency. It's a top priority for the administration. Unfortunately, these sorts of attacks are becoming more frequent. Wall Street closes out the week hitting fresh records as Friday's jobs report missed expectations, encouraging investors to believe the Federal Reserve will keep its ultra-easy policies in place for longer. Scottish leader Nicola Sturgeon tells UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson it's a matter of when, not if, Scotland holds another independence referendum as her Scottish National Party wins a resounding election victory. I support independence. The UK government oppose independence. That's legitimate. But the only people who have the right to decide that question are the people of Scotland. And the way to do that is in a referendum. EU leaders criticise President Biden's vaccine waiver plans, calling on the US to ramp up production and boost exports to nations in need instead of making it easier to produce the vaccine worldwide. Plus, Elon Musk's Saturday Night Live appearance takes a chunk out of Dogecoin hours before SpaceX says it will accept the cryptocurrency as payment to launch a mission to the moon. What is it, man? (laughs) I keep telling you, it's a cryptocurrency you can trade for conventional money. Oh, so it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. (laughs) Why didn't you say that, man? Ghostfather, everybody. It's a hustle. To the moon. So, very good morning. A warm welcome to the programme. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. Good to see you nice this morning. Let's you. kick off then with this uh, story that's still developing in the United States. The largest fuel pipeline in America remains mostly offline this hour after suffering a ransomware attack on Friday. Colonial Pipeline, which operates a 5,500-mile system, said on Sunday that some smaller lines had been reopened as it works to restore services. Its systems connect refineries on the Gulf Coast to over 50 million people in the southern and eastern United States. Multiple reports suggest a Russian criminal group called Darkside may be behind the attack. Well, the U.S. Transport Department has issued an emergency declaration in a bid to maintain fuel supplies while the pipeline remains offline. The Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, told CBS the government is doing all it can to resume supplies. It's an all-hands-on-deck effort right now, and we are working closely with the company, state and local officials, to you know, make sure that they get back up to normal operations. Given the size of the pipeline we're talking about here and its dominance uh, for the United States, there has been some flow and impact to uh, the price of oil. 
WTI popping high by half of a percent. Brent also rising, as you can see. In terms of the backdrop around oil last week, we did have a positive move in the oil price. But this story on top, uh, given the impact on critical infrastructure, is uh, important to the price and one that we will continue to watch. There is hope in the United States that there will not be panic buying and uh, obviously some uncertainty around the impact on the pipeline being closed. The, the duration quite key. If it's more than three days, it may carry on across on the, the price impact for uh, diesel and for gasoline. Let's take a look at the gasoline price as a result as well. 1.4% pop you're seeing at this point. So uh, it's one for the market to watch. We're ticking down to the key driving season. But demand has been a little bit hard to pinpoint anyway, given that we've had these COVID restrictions. So as we talk about the typical US driving season, who knows what that will look like this year anyway, with a, a, a very strong vaccination program, yet still significant concerns around COVID. Steve, I think what's been remarkable about this story is just how well behaved the oil price has been, given how serious the underlying story is and the fact that this has closed down a major pipeline. These are relatively modest moves, it would seem. Yeah. yeah. Good morning to both of you. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this one, actually, and, and just uh, trying to work out what I really believe should the, the oil price should be doing on the back of this and you know, just looking for all the experts and what have you. And when you think about it, you can understand why it's only a modest move to the upside. Yes, the US may have to import more product from elsewhere if they cannot get refined product to market. But on the other hand, it's the refined product I can see going up at the pumps. Karen, you were mentioning gasoline, of course, uh, and concerns about what is a gigantic pipeline all the way from Pasadena uh, up to New York, New Jersey. So if you think about it, if you can't get your crude in the United States refined, then you have less need at that moment in time for WTI. So I can see why it's slightly more nuanced on the price move as well. Uh, the other argument, as I say, is the fact that you may need more imported product into the US. So that would put pressure on global measures such as Brent as well. But I think it really underlines and uh, a few points. And I'm surprised Karen didn't already mention it because I know that Karen has spoken a lot on this channel about what happened in Texas uh, with the outage we saw there as well. And I think if you add that uh, winter outage because of the, the heavy snow and the lack of spend on the infrastructure there to this as well. You get to an equation where basically perhaps people in the industry who have worried about infrastructure spending for so long, uh, the Baker Hughes of this world, um, the Schlumberger's of this world, may actually see uh, a little bit of a twink of light from this one because the Biden administration may have to pivot somewhat away from its green mantra of spending to actually think about the traditional infrastructure spending as well, uh, as these two incidents uh, have highlighted as well. So I think that's why one thing for a start. I think infrastructure spending, whether it's on the automation side, the, the cybersecurity side, or actually just looking at the structure of US pipelines, uh, maybe there is a, a longer term chink of light there as well. Just, just one completely different thought I was having as well. We have on this channel dozens, hundreds of people coming to us and telling us automation is coming. IOT is coming. And I think I've kind of signed up to that, that every company needs to have more automation, more internet of things, more digitization, because it helps them on costs and efficiencies as well. And perhaps also adds to green issues. But the more internet uh, autonomy we get and internet of things we get, does this highlight the fact that we're going to have more potential risks uh, from these kind of cyber crimes as well, i.e. not only have you got to spend on the automation and the digitization, you've also got to put your money up when it comes to cyberware as well and fighting these things. So I think it's very, very interesting to see whether there is an argument in favour of more digitization on the back of this, more internet things, more automation or less, given the fact that we know that a large amount of the problem here is because of the digitised nature of the colonial pipeline. 
It's a bit of both, isn't it? And uh, I think if you go over history, this is not an attack in isolation. There have been other attacks too, and namely the one on the water facility in Florida. That was one that captured my attention, probably more so than the deep freeze in Texas. Uh, for me, it was this incident that was uh, something that rattled those in the, the cyber community where they, they looked at this attack on a, a key utility. It was effectively conducted. Uh, there was old uh, software that had been embedded in the system that had been used for remote access. Uh, some of the, the team had stopped using it, but yet it was still installed uh, on the system. And that can tell you about the access point still for cyber criminals, about the type of software that can be open source, that can be widely used, that can still provide that, that gateway for cyber criminals. And uh, this particular case now, when it comes to this US pipeline, it's uh, the subject of an investigation. There is a third party cybersecurity firm that has been hired to investigate. But it does tell you that uh, the attack has now shifted critical infrastructure. I mean, as uh, Steve points out, we talk about smart networks here. You can uh, have uh, many efficiencies that are extracted from connecting up these in this uh, key infrastructure across the United States and elsewhere. But if you provide the access point, if you haven't upgraded all of the system and you haven't checked for old software uh, and managed pass, uh, passwords, I mean, there's so many different access points to check, then you can have a major situation like this. And I think it is a, a huge wake-up call to governments around the world. Uh, the interesting uh, aspect to this for me is just whether this takes on a geopolitical dimension because we remember the solar winds mm -hmm. attack, the uh, US federal government under assault largely from a what was perceived by the United States services, uh, security services, to have been an attack by a Russian group connected to the US government, uh, connected to the Russian government in some way. This uh, story, no suggestion that this is the Russian government, but the allegation is that this is a Russian criminal gang. Um, I just wonder how long it takes for the government to start pointing the finger and this to take on some geopolitical consequences. In terms of the um, attacks that you're talking about, this has been well understood to be the soft underbelly for societies for a very long time. I think going way back to the first significant attack on Iranian nuclear facilities decades ago, which still hasn't really been um, acknowledged by any Western intelligence agency as having been done by them. A lot of suspicion it was the Israelis, but it was attacking the machine code rather than going through uh, desk-based, um, office-based uh, terminals. And so it, it throws up, obviously, the potential for lots of facilities to be targeted here. The federal authorities have a job on their hand. My question at this point, beyond the geopolitical, is how much of that infrastructure support that President Biden is now trying to drum up the two trillion, how much of that will now be directed into closing these kind of loopholes in utility security systems? Because it is clear that it's not only the federal government, it is these facilities that have some gaping holes that need to be plugged at this stage, Steve. Yeah, 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 all of the above. And I think... Um 
the, the, the Russia, Europe, sorry, Russia, the West angle, I thought was 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 very very pertinent. And, and basically, it's not going to lead to less sanctions, is it? We know that there's lots of uh, tit for tat expulsions and uh, sanctions taking place at the moment as well. But I was going to actually say something rather glib, actually, if our viewers don't mind, because um, at least we've already got uh, a minor member of the British royalty who could perhaps smooth relations over between the West and Russia as well. Um, our UK viewers may well know about a story of, involving a minor member uh, of the British royal family, in fact, a cousin of the Queen, who was uh, caught on tape rather embarrassingly this weekend talking about his relations uh, with senior people in the Putin regime and how he could do favours for international corporations. But uh, that's uh, a Channel 4 and Sunday Times uh, exclusive there. So uh, I'll leave it at that, Jeff, as well. But very interesting to see that around the periphery, despite the antagonism between the West and Russia, there are always people willing to do business on both sides of the trade. Absolutely. Well, let's tell you for more on the fallout from the colonial pipeline uh, story, you can go to the website. Obviously, uh, a great deal more there for you to check up on as we continue to follow this ransomware attack and what the implications are for the oil price. Well, you lot out there were asked a question by Jeff on Friday, and that question was, what is the key part of the data? What part of the data on the non-farm payrolls will lead to the market going up or down? Well, quite frankly, it was a howler of a miss on the headline figure. Uh, despite the fact, as Jeff also pointed out, the average hourly earnings were very, very interesting in that. And yet the market still went up. So draw what you will of that. Jobs growth in America slowed during April, with non-farm payrolls coming in well below expectations. The US added just 266,000 jobs in the month, sharply less than the 1 million jobs forecast by Dow Jones. The unemployment rate also missed estimates, rising to 6.1%. But very interesting, Karen. I thought that average hourly earnings figure may be a bit of a warning of things to come. Let's take a look at our US futures then emerged ahead of the trading session today. We are watching some green on the charts, 76 on the Dow. Uh, that follows a record session on Wall Street again for the Dow with the S&P. Uh, these were very strong components of the market along with Dow Jones Transports all posting fresh record highs as we closed up the trading session. In terms of the big moving stocks on the back of the, the non-farm payrolls report, the stocks that were the positive catalyst for markets, Boeing having the big impact on the Dow, it was Microsoft for the S&P and for the Nasdaq. So a little bit of everything in terms of a relief rally in the technology sector. Those names had been trading very warily over the course of the week ahead of the payrolls report and the potential for some form of an inflation response, interest rate concerns that could spark for the sell-off in technology, that didn't happen and uh, that sector was a, a strong uh, part of this market. But also uh, the recovery that we're still seeing in quarters around this COVID story in Boeing is one story that is a, a nod to that. That stock uh, very firm in that trading session. The Treasury market, uh, the implications were strong as well. We were trading uh, strongly uh, around that uh, 1.57 mark before the report crossed and we got below 1.5% on that US 10-year Treasury yield, you can see we've gone back up to about almost 1.6 at this stage. So a little bit of an oscillation on that yield at this stage, but uh, nothing to, to really spook the bond community in that report uh, as investors have been concerned about a big build-up in the uh, jobs numbers. Let's take a look at the dollar implications that we're watching. Uh, you can see this morning reclaiming a little bit of territory against the safe haven yen. We are seeing some weakness uh, in the euro this morning versus the US dollar. It is a sterling that's making gains this morning versus the greenback. You can see the 140.40, the handle that we're watching on the trade versus the pound. Steve. 
Yeah, I'm not sure the ECB will be liking those moves on the euro as well. well thanks, Karen. Right, we're going to have further action and reaction regarding the weaker-than-expected non-farm payroll data later today when our U.S. colleagues speak to the Chicago Fed president. That's Charles Evans. Uh, that interview, 14.30 CET. But coming up on this show, it's not if, but when. That's what Nicola Sturgeon says, putting a Scottish independence vote back on the table after her party's success in the Holyrood elections. The Scottish Conservative Jamie Green will join us after the break with his view as well. I'm pretty sure I know where Jamie's going on this one. Uh, but for more on the potential consequences from the colonial pipeline shutdown that we've discussed already, uh, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Back. Scotland's leader Nicola Sturgeon has told the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson another independence vote is now inevitable. Sturgeon's Scottish National Party won the highest number of seats in Thursday's parliamentary vote. Just one shy, though, of an overall majority. But along with the uh, Scottish Green Party, the SNP holds a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament. Now, the First Minister said she plans to deliver a referendum within the first half of this parliament, COVID permitting, adding that the election result legitimises such a move. Will the UK government permit a referendum? You know, it's predicated on a lack of basic respect for Scottish democracy. The SNP has just won a landslide election victory on the strength of a commitment to a referendum when the time is right. There is a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament. You know, the statistics of this election campaign in many respects are record-breaking for the SNP. So the, the question for the UK government is a simple one and it should not be a controversial one. Do they accept democracy or don't they? And I hope that however uh, they might couch that at this stage, they will accept democracy. Meanwhile, Downing Street, which opposes a new referendum, has looked to shift focus away from the pro-independence victory to the nationwide effort to contain the pandemic. If we get sucked into a conversation about referenda, constitutions and all the rest of it, then we're diverting attention from the issues that are most important to people in Scotland and across the United Kingdom. And I think, I hope, that what people want from the Holyrood government and also from the Westminster government is a commitment to work together on these issues. So instead of concentrating on the things that divide, let's concentrate on the things that unite and let's concentrate on all of us working together to serve the people who've just voted for us. Well, I'm delighted to say we've got another voice on this now. Jamie Green is the Scottish Conservative MSP, returned uh, for West Scotland as well. Jamie, congratulations on being returned as well. Look, um, it's the elephant in the room that's not going away. There is a school of thought within the Conservative Party, both sides of the border. Just get it over and done with. But but how would you say? I mean, the Scottish should be allowed their vote at some stage, shouldn't they? I don't know anyone who's saying just have another referendum and get it over and done with. I haven't heard anyone say that. And thank you for your kind words. Uh, first of all, it's been a very long, a long campaign. It's been a long weekend. Um, but, you know, I, I think Michael Gove, listening to your clip there, is absolutely right. Uh, I think the Scottish public, whatever way uh, they, they, they sit on the political spectrum or however they voted in the last election, 
really are more worried about their health, about their jobs and about education than they are about the constitutional issue, which Nicola Sturgeon uh, wants to talk about. Uh, so I, mean, I, I, I don't really buy this argument that somehow there is a, a democratic deficit in the United Kingdom. What we are seeing is a Scottish Nationalist Party who really have failed to accept the result of the last referendum we had in 2014. They lost that referendum, but they've never been happy with losing that referendum. And the problem therein is that they have always repeated their mantra that they want to have another one because their view is that let's just keep okay. having the argument and the debate until we win it. And that's not how democracy actually works. But, but, but Jamie, the, the, the last referendum we had, as you well know, uh, was the, in the, the, the Brexit referendum where 62% of Scots men and women did not want to leave the EU as well. And we know that that's the bedrock of the SNP argument. I just want to go back to my other point, though. Uh, I said within the Conservative Party on both sides of, of the border as well. Let me broaden that point out then. Uh, in, amongst pro-unionists on both sides of the border and given the fact that Alba, which wanted an immediate referendum, failed so ignominiously to take votes away from the SNP and others, the, the school of thought still remains. Whilst there is shaky support for uh, an indie ref too. Why not go ahead quicker rather than later uh, when there could be well more support later in the parliament if indeed the SNP has a successful strategy of drumming up support? Yeah, no, I, 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 think, I think in some cases there would be a logic to that. Let's have the argument when you want to win it. Um, but I mean, my view on that is that we had that debate. I mean, 2014 was a very divisive referendum. And you will know as well as anyone that the 2016 referendum on our EU membership was an extremely divisive referendum. And I think really what people are, are looking on at it in Scottish politics is thinking, here is a new parliament. It's a, it's a you know, it's a very new uh, makeup of parliament. The political structures really aren't that different. The results aren't that different from the 2016 election that we had. And it's, but it is a, a, a new parliament with new members and it's much more diverse than it ever has been. But the greater context of this is that we are still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Scotland is still in lockdown. The United Kingdom is still under uh, major restrictions. And I guess what people are saying on the doorsteps that when I was campaigning is, why on earth are you guys talking about referendums and constitutional change? Uh, and all the division that brings, which is testament to uh, what referendums do, they divide countries, they divide uh, views and opinions and communities, they divide families. And of course, all the time you're doing that, you're distracting yourselves from the day job. The day job in this case is getting on with a very powerfully devolved parliament, which has a lot of work in its hands. I mean, the economic outlook for Scotland and indeed the entire United Kingdom is going to be difficult over the next couple of uh, days and months. And I think the parliament should be focused on that. And that's my argument. It's not just a technical argument about why we should not have a re referendum. It's also a moral one as well. And I think really that's what voters are looking for from their politicians in the coming months. Absolutely, Jamie, all that taken as, as read. But there is an issue, isn't there, uh, over the relationship uh, that central government has with uh, the various devolved governments at this point. I think Mark Drayford summed it up quite neatly when he said now there is an opportunity for a reset here in the way that the centre is working with those devolved administrations because there are problems with Northern Ireland and the Brexit agreement. There are clearly issues unresolved with regard to Scotland and even uh, um, the, the Welsh government now uh, thinks that there needs to be some tweaks on the machinery. Um, is there a need for Boris Johnson to give some further ground on what devolved powers actually go to the regions? 
I'm not sure which more powers could be devolved to the regions. I, I, I think I make two points on that, and I think it's a very valid uh, point uh, that, that others are making as well, is what we have seen in this election, uh, because there were elections right across the UK, is there is an incumbency factor. So in England, uh, the Conservative Party made tremendous gains against all odds, uh, where they are in government uh, in Westminster, in, La uh, in Wales, the Labour Party, uh, made some gains, and in Scotland, the Scottish Nationalist Party, who have been in government for a number of years, made uh, 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 you know good progress as well. So, I think the COVID pandemic has reset politics. But the second point it, it relates to your uh, argument, which is devolution must work. I would argue actually that the Scottish Parliament, of all the administrations in the UK, is one of the most powerfully devolved and has already a tremendous amount of power over things like health, education transportation, infrastructure, and so on. The, the question is, w which more powers do you need if you're in government to make life better for people? My argument is that after 14 very long years, the Scottish National Party have already had access to all the levers and controls uh, to run Scotland. And therefore, any failure to deliver uh, 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 you know, is, is their fault and their fault alone. What they've been very, very good at doing uh, is benefiting from remaining part of the UK, but apportioning blame for failure on domestic issues to a government sitting uh, south of the border elsewhere. So, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is very good at this game. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to see five more years of that. Jamie, I want to talk a little bit more about the COVID impact on this election. Huge voter turnout. Perhaps some of it was down to a verdict on Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the crisis at this point. But of course, there's another journey ahead of us when it comes to the continued rollout of the vaccination, but also the recovery, the re rebuild on the back of the pandemic. Just give us a sense of the shared journey from here, how the Conservatives, uh, how Boris Johnson could seek to handle from Westminster uh, any road forward around independence by providing providing this unity now in recovery. Yeah, Karen, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what I think people are expecting is despite our political differences, and I, and I do respect that there are people out there who do believe that the future of Scotland lies in a different path from the one that I believe in. But I think what they're looking for from their governments, and Scotland has two governments, that's a really important point uh, to make in this. Uh, and Scotland can benefit from having two governments. I think what, I mean, I've been in the Scottish Parliament now for five years, and what we've seen is when uh, the two governments are at loggerheads consistently on economic uh, development, on infrastructure spending, uh, on, on the green recovery, uh, now lump that in with the uh, COVID pandemic, I, I actually think there's an opportunity here for all governments, despite their political differences, to start to, start to work together uh, in a better fashion. Because I think really what we saw in the, the UK is the success, uh, tremendous success of our vaccination programme means that we're now able to start reopening our economies. Uh, we've done that by working together. And I think that's the point is we want to be working together. I, I don't agree with the Scottish National Party in their political principles, but I'm happy to work with them constructively and positively. Boris Johnson is willing to do the same. Uh, I've heard over the weekend that uh, there are plans, for example, for a, a summit of, of the devolved nations to work together on how we will jointly recover from the pandemic using the powers that each government has. I think that's a good thing. I want to be working with Northern Ireland, who we trade with. I want to be working uh, with our friends in England across the border. Scotland uh, trades massively with uh, the rest of the UK. In fact, the, uh, the rest of the UK is Scotland's biggest trading partner, not the EU. So, you know, absolutely, let's focus on that. But that will require not just the technical structure. It will also require, I think, some mental agility okay. uh, to sit down around the table, park aside differences and actually start working together. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.